Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, where we feature a selection of sermons and study series by Kevin Morris, part of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Well, we're picking things back up in the book of 1 Peter after my extended break from the show. As I mentioned earlier this week, we're back into our regular programming, and that means we're back into the book of 1 Peter. We have made our way essentially halfway through chapter 2, going through verse by verse of this book. So if you've missed any of the previous episodes, please consider looking at any of your favorite listening platforms. We are going to be tackling the issue of authority. Where we left off in 1 Peter was the 11th and 12th verse where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what we talked about was this idea of honorable conduct. And the natural place that that is seen and that is put on display for the world is essentially in the issue of authority. It's a fascinating place that Peter chooses to go in order to demonstrate how this is so. So before we get into it, let's actually read the text. uh, Verse 13, and we will look at verses 13 through 21. Here's what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That last verse there is a good transition. Um, It helps the transition of understanding what verses 13 through 20 are really getting to. And it's a good transition into the rest of the chapter. So we'll really be leaving verses 21 uh, through 25, the end of the chapter, uh, for next episode. But I wanted to go ahead and read verse 21 just so you could understand that this idea of authority, first in the civil sphere, and then even in the sphere, which is part of the civil sphere, but even in the sphere of slavery, verses 18 through 20, that they're getting us to the supreme example of submitting to authority and suffering unjustly, and that is Christ himself. Okay, so verse 13, what 
Peter is doing here is he's moving us to this topic of submission to authority. And it does fall under that heading of the previous episode of that honorable conduct and good deeds as a particular example of how we are to do this faithfully as Christians in the day in and day out. So the command is given to us in regards to authority in this statement. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We see that in verse 13. That's the way that Peter um, positions this for us. So the explicit point of that sentence is for the Lord's sake. People get caught up in the idea of being subjects, especially in the United States, because we're a free country. So the idea of being a subject instead of a free individual is a little troubling of understanding how to apply this kind of thing to the 21st century. We certainly don't want to um, submit ourselves to every human institution because there's plenty of institutions that we would disagree with. There's plenty of institutions that are not only uh, non-Christian, but are anti-Christian. So how is this to be understood rightly? Well, Peter says that the main idea here is that we're doing this for the Lord's sake, which means there's special parameters for us, there's special qualifiers for us to understand what we're getting at. So what's being said here, be subject because of the Lord, by means of the Lord, through our subjection to the Lord, for the sake of the Lord, etc., etc. So as we see, there's much to be said of the phrase, for the Lord's sake. Since we're speaking of submitting to authority, or more specifically of being servants, we can look ahead to the end of Peter's words on this subject, where he makes mention of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. This passage, as the New Testament declares, is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And seeing this as Peter's inference about submitting to authority, we can view verse 13's phrase, be subject for the Lord's sake, as meaning essentially this, be subject by means of the example and the standard that's given to us by our Lord, the suffering servant himself. But in any case, our practice of servanthood must be sifted through the standard of servanthood given to us by Jesus. So going further, the phrase makes mention that This applies to every human institution, and this is, in Peter's mind, without exception. Peter further implies this by mentioning the greater and lesser levels of authority, which moves to the way in which we submit to authority as seen in verse 15. So verse 15, you have, he says, that by doing good, so that's the, the idea behind submitting to authority, that by doing good. And you can see this as kind of a parallel to verse 12, which we read last time. He says, that they may see your good deeds. So you have this idea of doing good as the embodiment of submitting to authority. It's very important for us as a way to qualify submitting to authority in the ultimate sense of rolling over and letting people walk all over us, and even to the point of compromising our faith, 
for the sake of, of pleasing the world or pleasing the worldly institutions. That's not what Peter has in mind at all. What he has in mind is the chief way in which we submit to authority is by our doing good. So now verse 16, the main emphasis in taking our servanthood into consideration of God and man is Peter's command in verse 16, that we are to live as those who are free. For indeed, we are the freed people after all. You have this Exodus motif in the New Testament that God frees us from the bondage of sin. He frees us from the tyranny of Egypt, from the hopelessness of the world, from, as the author of Hebrews says, the fleeting pleasures of sin. God frees us from that. He calls us to freedom. And this is spilled over into the New Testament, that this same idea that God is leading us to the promised land of heaven, and we're doing so as freed people, but now Peter wants to qualify our freedom, that we live as those who are free, yet this is not a freedom of autonomy, but a freedom to be servants, a freedom to be slaves of God. And herein we see our second uh, contradiction or play on words that is in First Peter. Remember, earlier in chapter 1, he calls us elect exiles, which we said is really another way of saying the chosen rejected ones. And now here we're depicted as free slaves. So again, you have this play on words, and this is really the root of our servanthood and submission to authority. We are not free to sin, nor are we slaves of sin. This was our state outside of Christ, our state of being, as mentioned earlier, by the analogy of the prostitute. But now we are free to obey, <clears throat> free precisely because we have been bought and purchased as slaves of God. This is supported, 1 Corinthians 7.22, Romans 6.22, that we are God's slaves. English translations typically say God's servants, and that's right, but slave is a better word because not only is it more literal, but it comes across as um, a strong point of emphasis. I'd like to even say a, a point of obligation. So we certainly shouldn't have in our minds this idea of uh, Western depictions of slavery. We're not talking about the experience of enslavement, of capturing people against their will and using them in all kinds of uh, inhumane ways, uh, which is the kind of modern understanding of slavery. What we have here is the idea of, you could argue, indentured servanthood, uh, where people are treated rightly, but there is a a sense of indebtedness. but even more than that, the, the language of slavery is, is stronger because think of what Paul is doing here. I don't necessarily think that in Romans with what Paul is doing or in First Peter with what Peter's doing, that what you have here in the idea of slaves is simply a first century capitulation of slavery as it was understood in the Roman Empire and abroad. Instead, I think what we have 
is the idea of slavery as it was chiefly understood in that Exodus motif. Because think about what God says through the mouth of Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may serve me. The freedom to which God calls us to, to which he acquires for us, is a freedom towards or unto servanthood. God calls us to be his servants by way of obligation because it is a covenant that he calls us to. It is an agreement of two parties. And a a covenant is a life bond of blood. It is a life or death commitment unto the one that we are obliged to. So that whole idea of slavery, as we see in the Bible here, don't confuse it with 21st century conceptions of slavery. Don't confuse it with uh, the practice of enslavement, of capturing people as prisoners. Um, Don't think of it as the idea of human trafficking. That is certainly not the idea of slavery to which is being depicted here. It is mostly and chiefly to be understood as the party of the covenant that is obliged to serve the greater, and that is God himself. We are obligated to him in the terms of this covenant that we are in with him. So we're not free to sin. We're not slaves of sin. That's who we were outside of Christ. But now slavery is understood here in the biblical terminology. We are obligated to serve God and not sinful desires. When God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as Peter's already said, that means he's called us from sin. So we are obligated not to sin, if you want to put it that way. Sounds quite provocative because we typically excuse ourselves in our sin because of grace. That's the terrible irony of cheap Christianity. Whereas the truth of the matter is, though we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, we are never allowed to sin as if it is not a big deal. In fact, it's the the exact opposite. We are obligated to serve God and not sin. This is what it means to serve God, to be his slaves. We're purchased by him, we belong to him, and now we are to be as he is. We are to mimic him. Be holy as I am holy. Now, again, I hope you notice these are all chapter one and early part of chapter two phrases and ideas that Peter is now applying. Remember I said that this part of the chapter is an application of the things that we have already uh, built by way of foundation from what Peter's already done. So, subjection to authority is really found in this. For we as Christians are to be subject to the highest authority, which is God himself. So, Peter says, for this sake and for this reason, we are to honor this subjection by being subject to human authorities. Because subjection is in our nature as Christians. To be a Christian is to be subject to authority. Contrast this with the words of Jude, who says about those who are ungodly. In verse 8 of Jude, he says, those who are ungodly are those who despise authority as a character trait. 
even fallen angels were warned of imitating in Second Peter and Jude, because these fallen angels are those who usurped authority. And to take it further, the sin of Satan was the despising of authority. To bring it even further, the sin in the garden was the sin of despising authority. Even the root of sin, as it is said, of pride. Pride is the encroachment of our own authority upon another authority, a higher authority. To be subject to authority is the essence of being redeemed because it is the despising of authority that is the essence of sinfulness. This is embodied in our command to be subject, but if it moves further into a mode of do not encroach upon authority to an affirmative. And that's what we see in verse number 17. So the big idea here is, according to Peter, the name of the game of being subject to authority is a demonstration of the fact that we've been rescued by God. For some, it sounds almost like a cheap grace, because if we're truly freed, how is it that we have to be subject to God? How is it that we have to be subject to authority? How is it that we are, based on the arguments and the scoffing of the world, how is it that we are to live, according to Peter, as those who are subject to something else, if the whole gospel message is about freedom? Well, that's the problem. What the church does, in broadly speaking here, what the broadly speaking church does, oftentimes, is communicate to the world that we have freedom to give them. And it's such a it's such a remarkable freedom that they don't need to give anything up that they are doing or give up any kind of desire or any kind of life pattern because the love of God and the grace of God is so transcendent that none of those things can become stumbling blocks to it. Now, this is a dangerous game, but it's really reinventing an earlier controversy that came up, oh, I don't know, in the 80s and the 90s, about the lordship of Jesus, where you had people say that we could receive Jesus as Savior, but not receive him as our Lord. And so then you had people who live claiming to be Christians, but wanting to do so with the kind of false freedom of human autonomy where we can do, say, think, and participate in whatever we want and still say that we are a Christian because to say that we have to give other things up must be legalism. So therefore, we can have our cake and eat it too and have other kinds of cake and eat those pieces of cake too without any kind of stipulations. That was the name of the game. And eventually... You could receive Jesus as your Lord, but that wasn't in any way antithetical to him already being your Savior. In short, what the argument was, was that you could be a Christian and really not look like it in any ethical sense. This was a dangerous game, and it's certainly an unbiblical game, because to be rescued is to belong to God, is to be subject to him. To understand Jesus as Lord 
is embedded within the gospel message. The gospel is the only thing by which we can be saved. The good news, the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, and part of that whole story is that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To dismiss that and to think that somehow we can have the gospel without having any kind of paradigm of being subjects to authority is really a false gospel. Because according to Peter, there's no way that we can practice or demonstrate the gospel at work in our lives, in our hearts, without the proper way of being subject to authority. Because it testifies to the gospel. It testifies to the fact that we belong to God. If you take that away, what is the message that we are communicating to the world? If we're free to do whatever we want, if we're free to look just like the world, if we're free to not abstain from anything, then what we're communicating to the world is that we're just like you, and essentially our message is not all that unique. It is just some kind of ethical template or some kind of psychological comfort that we have without any real foundation associated with it. So Peter now moves this idea of authority into the affirmative. Verse 17 says this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is a universal emphatic. Honor who? Everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, with no stipulations or qualifications there. This is different from the Christian ethic of give honor to whom honor is due. Instead, it's honor everyone in the broad sense. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's not talking about us being servants in the ultimate sense. He's talking about us being servants in the evangelistic or apologetic sense. Remember, we saw this already. Verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's your negative. And then the positive, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How will they know to glorify God if you don't demonstrate your good deeds? And how else could you demonstrate your good deeds but by being a prime example in the sphere of the world as we know it? What I mean by that is the societal structure of countries, of towns, of cities, of nations, of continents. We are in the public square, as it has been said in apologetic conversations. We are to demonstrate Christianity in the public square. We are to do so in the context of our governments, in the context of our cities, in the context of our towns. This is to be seen, local, state, and even the federal government, if you're in the United States. Every aspect of human institutions, we are to demonstrate that we belong to God. 
Now, that necessarily means that our theology should have a direct impact upon our ethics, upon cultural and social issues. So many times people like to say, well, let's just be a libertarian government. Let's have small government, which I agree with, but let's have such a small government, such a powerless government, that the government can't speak to anything in any way, and let's basically make everything wide open as long as it doesn't lead to violence. And oftentimes this is normally seen um, with the exception of abortion, which is violence. Well, the name of the game is freedom, so we want to give freedom to the mother to do whatever it is she wants, including aborting the child that's within her. Well, that's violence, but freedom trumps violence, even in a libertarian uh, structure. So there you go. No problem here. Nothing to see. Keep your Christianity outside the walls. That is totally foreign to Peter's idea, which is even a bit ironic because Peter's in a much more oppressive government in the Roman Empire, where he says, honor the emperor, even the emperor who will later have Peter martyred, that all of these ethical implications for Christianity are to be demonstrated in the public square. There's even a way in which we are subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution by civil disobedience. Now, I don't mean violence, I don't mean uprising, I don't mean anarchy, but what I mean is, for example, in the book of Acts, think about Peter and John, who are commissioned to preach the gospel. And the government, as it were, comes to them and forbids them from doing so, from preaching this gospel, from speaking about this resurrected Christ. And the famous answer is, we must obey God rather than men. They don't resort to violence. They don't say, we don't recognize any of your authority here. They do so within the grounds, within the stipulations of the authority, until it gets to the point of essentially no longer being subject to our supreme authority, who is God. And then they say, I cannot encroach that. I cannot breach that. I must be subject, for the Lord's sake, chiefly to the Lord himself. And therefore, I must obey God rather than men. The same ethical imperative is given to us in the way that we are to live as God's people in this world, primarily when it comes to issues of lawmaking, when it comes to issues of voting in our own cities and the place that we live and what our school system looks like, and all of these issues that somehow people dismiss as not related to Christianity, that's your Sunday thing, and the rest of the world is reality. Whereas Peter says, this reality of being born again should be demonstrated in doing good. And the way that we do good is within the human institutions. We are to love the brotherhood, honor everyone, fear God, honor the emperor. So the name of the game for Peter is not to politicize Christianity but rather to say that the authority that we have from God, which includes morality, includes the Ten Commandments, how we are to live, includes what it means that God says, 
that we are freed to serve him. What it means that the institutions to which God gives us are to be cities on a hill, are to be light to the dark world. The way in which we do that is to see a necessary correlation to issues of abortion, issues of marriage, issues of government overreach, issues of running for election. All of these things have a place. All of these things are important. Christianity leaves no stone unturned in the way that we are to live in light. What God is saying is that we are to demonstrate his authority and who he is in the public square. I intended to go into verse 18 and following, but I think it's actually best to call it quits for this episode. So what we'll do is we'll pick up on verse number 18 next week and work our way through the end of the chapter. That way we can see the way that Peter transitions this kind of broadly speaking um, ethical imperative for Christians, but then he qualifies it by the way that we are to actually suffer. And this will certainly hit close to home for Peter's uh, future life of martyrdom.